Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast. This is Lila, and I'm here with Helen Taylor, my colleague at Exodus Cry, who's the director of intervention. And we are absolutely honored, thrilled uh, to have Liz Walker with us today, calling in all the way from Australia. And Liz is a pornography educator and sexuality well-being advocate. She's the director of health education for Culture Reframed, which is a leading organization dedicated to solving the public health crisis of pornography. She's also the deputy chair of the Australian charity eChildhood, the managing director of Youth Wellbeing Project. She regularly provides consultancy to governments, to nonprofits, to professional organizations. And on top of all of that, she's an author. And she has authored the children's book, Not for Kids, which is a must-have for parents uh, to prepare their kids for the inevitable occasion of when they will see explicit imagery. So thank you, Liz, for taking the time to be with us today and to share your knowledge and expertise. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Liz. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you might be able to start off today just telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into this work, and what you're doing today. Wow, that's a really long story, but I'll try and keep it brief. Um, It all started when I was six. Um, So I saw pornography on a school bus uh, in a graphic magazine, and that drastically uh, impacted me. Um, and the types of behaviours that I engaged in when I was growing up. Um, So fast forward till uh, late 30s and I decided that I would go and do a Master of Health Science and Sexual Health. And beyond that, it was really noticing how much children and young people were being active... uh, uh, Sorry. How much children and young people were being... Um, influenced by pornography and just knowing how much it had shaped my life, I then really started to speak out about this area. And so um, over the last couple of years from probably 2015 onwards, I've been solely dedicated to exploring what the impacts of pornography on children and young people are and more than just talking about it, but creating solutions. Mm. Um, there's only so many times you can talk about the problem without actually doing something about it. So uh, that's how I ended up where I am now. Wow, that's amazing to hear that you speak from a place of experience and also great education um, through the years here as an expert on this topic. And I love what you said about providing solutions because so often it can be overwhelming to hear consistently about the problem, like you said, and just feel overwhelmed. I think especially parents who, um, you know, see their kids growing up in this digital age and just aren't sure what to do. And so having people like you offering very practical, helpful solutions, I think is such an amazing resource for parents. So mm-hmm. I highly suggest that everybody go onto your website, which is lizwalkerpresents.com because it's an extremely rich resource. The blog is amazing. Um, and so I just definitely recommend that after the podcast, parents who want more information or anybody really who cares about children or cares about the issue of pornography, to jump onto Liz's website and to just take in all of that she's written there and all the resources that she has. Yeah. And obviously, 
with ex-describing an anti-trafficking organization, uh, one of the questions that we get um, all the time, Liz, is about how to protect our kids from predators. And I think this is a conversation that kind of overlaps because it's um, directed towards how do parents have these kind of essential conversations about vulnerability with their children in general, um, but not just about trafficking predators, but about the, their entire online world and porn itself being a form of a predator that parents might not be fully aware is going to find their kids um, if they are not um, prepared for that. And um, our next film is on the porn industry. We have a book coming out that Lila and Benji co-wrote. And so this is something that's very much on the topic of Exodus Christ. Some people might not have even been aware of that, just knowing that we're an anti-trafficking organization. Um, but this idea of prevention and education and everything that is in your whole world is so key, so important, a really critical conversation. So, um, yeah, we're just excited to, to unpack and hear from some of your wisdom on this topic. Yeah, thank you. I, I think the um, biggest thing for me is knowing how much pornography drives uh, sexual trafficking and exploitation. Um, and in ways that we often don't think about uh, trafficking. So, for instance, young girls in schools um, doing what they would term as sexual, you know, friends with benefits or sexual favours in exchange for. Um, goods or payment, you know, that's trafficking that's happening in pretty much every every school across America, across the world, I would say. Um, and pornography very much grooms young people into those behaviours. It is a grooming tool in and of itself, not just when predators use it to groom children. Mm -hmm. But the very fact that kids can access porn, and we're not just talking you know, what I saw in a magazine, we're talking graphic, hardcore, violent, abusive content that's literally shaping young people's ideas about what they think sex is. And I think the porn industry has done a very good job at conflating the concept of porn and sex because what we see in porn is not what most couples want in a sexual relationship. Such an important point to know that the idea of grooming children and not only grooming them for sexual exploitation, but in the context of human trafficking, but even sexual exploitation in the context of their own sexual relationships when they get older in that they're developing this sexual template, this model for sex that is completely unhealthy and <laughs> violent, degrading, thought up by pornographers who's only interest is the bottom line and being as extreme as they can. But I think you're bringing up an important point here in that, you know, it's just so it's so available today and it's so ubiquitous and it's so in your face for children growing up in this digital age. And a lot of parents may not quite understand the implications of that. I'm sure a lot of them do, but I think a lot didn't grow up in the digital age. They didn't grow up with smartphones when they were 12 years old. They didn't grow up, you know, with with high-speed internet access all of the time. I just have recently read a study uh, based on 
2,600 American tweens and teens, and they found that 53% of kids age 8 to 12 had their own tablet, and 67% of teens have their own smartphones, and that kids in general are spending upward of nine hours a day on average looking at visual media. So I think we're just in a different age now, and, um, and so it's important for parents to just be aware of the ways in which their kids are being, you know, there's an onslaught of this sexually explicit imagery. And could you speak into that a little bit just to lay a foundation for the conversation of the importance and the urgency um, to begin thinking about exposure of porn to our children for parents who may not necessarily be aware of how prevalent it is and how damaging it can be and what the risk is to their child to actually be exposed. Yeah, sure. And I think, um, you know, for us to know those statistics around how much young time young people are spending online without joining the dots um, as to how much pornography that means that they have access to is really short-sighted. And I know that, um, you know, some parents just haven't even given it a thought and uh, really encourage them to tune in now and, and just really think about how easy it is for kids to access at the click of a button. Um, I've, I've delivered workshops where parents have come up to me afterwards and said, oh, I thought you had to sign in to access porn. Um, but no, literally at the moment in every country except for um, you know a few of the more communist countries like China where they've locked it all together, and the UK that's just about to introduce age verification. And aside from that, any child can can Google um, simply a body part or they might even be searching for um, cats mating for a, um, a project. Um, and unfortunately, what they find on Google will be images um, that often lead to porn sites um, or they'll find it through social media, particularly Instagram and Snapchat. Um, so the access points are everywhere. And when kids land on a website, they're landing on, I think the last time I actually counted the number of um, videos on the front screen of Pornhub, it was about 44. And if you go to some of the other websites, other, other tube sites, you, you've got, you know, 60, 100 videos just on the landing page and millions behind that. Um, so the accessibility uh, is just absolutely massive. Um, and what happens with when young people are watching pornography, if that is their only source of information, um, they're, they're going to end up absorbing a sexual media script or a porn script from that. So a script is the story that we tell ourselves about our sexuality. And porn is a very powerful script writer, particularly for a child who is not developmentally ready to hear or understand what's going on. Um, and so research tells us that when those sexual media scripts are exclusive, if that's the main message in the absence of alternative messages, um, if it's formative, so if it's very early exposure or it's the first source of information, 
if it's resonant, is it consistent with real life experiences, what their peers are going through talking about um, normalising um, and is it reinforced? So a reinforcement might be um, a positive reinforcement of ejaculating, obviously that's um, positive in the, in the physiological sense, um, but when that's reinforced through masturbation, um, then the sexual media scripts are more likely to, to be applied. So the young people are more likely to believe um, and absorb what they see in porn. So to counteract that, parents really need to be early with their conversations, um, persistent and regularly reinforced. Um, and, and I mean, that's straight from what the research is telling us about how important this is to have early, persistent and reinforced conversations. And I often say that um, ACE is too late. If you haven't spoken to your child about sex and pornography by the age of eight, you're actually too late. Wow. Eight, eight is too late. I love that. But <laughs> there's always yeah. catch up, but yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that was, I was going to ask you if you had an age that you felt was the age where it was too late and eight is too late. And mm -hmm. I think I've, I've read that studies are saying the average age of exposure to porn is around eight and some say 11 years old, but um, that's early that, you know, I, but, but that's the reality. I think most parents would be really surprised to hear that if they haven't started these conversations before the age of eight, it's too late, but that's, tr but that's the reality. And I think it's important for all of us to know. Um, and when talking about, the harms on on the brain of the child. There's also the the addictive nature and the the fact that the child's going to be um, responding and their brain's going to become addicted to something that they don't even understand. And the levels of of violence that are so prevalent in porn. And I think a lot of parents, even in this entire conversation, might not be aware of when we're talking about porn. It's, it's beyond explicit images in a magazine that their child might be shown by another child. These are often hardcore violent videos that are um, ex would be extremely tra traumatizing for a six, seven or eight year old to see. And hopefully that point in and of itself should inspire a deeper urgency of the need for um, conversations to prepare your child um, and protect your child. Absolutely. When I was doing research for the book, I went into kind of, I was kind of getting into character as a young person and seeing what it would be like if I got on the internet and I just searched the word sex, you know, because I think a lot of young boys and girls have heard that word and might be curious about it. So search that inevitably Pornhub, along with a lot of other websites would pop up. Like Liz said, you click on Pornhub, which is the YouTube. They have these YouTubes of porn. Um, and she mentioned that there's these thumbnails of all of these videos, 4,400. And then behind those is just millions of other pages and videos to see. But what was really disturbing to me was that you just, you don't even actually have to click on the video. It'll autoplay. Uh -huh. So you get on Pornhub and the little thumbnail images are already playing and you haven't even clicked on them. So in that sense, it's 
it's so quick, it's so fast that they'll be able to see these hardcore, violent, degrading porn scenes played out right in front of them as a primary source of sexual information and how disturbing that can be. And to the point of them not being prepared, I've um, you know read that the a person's frontal lobe of the brain isn't developed until the mid-20s, and that's the part of the brain where you can make decisions and you can reason and you can think through things to make decisions of is this good for me or bad for me, and that part of the brain isn't even developed, so they don't even have that capacity. So completely vulnerable children being exposed at an alarming rate. I think a recent Australian study of um, Australian youth found that 100% of boys and 82% of girls had been exposed to porn during their um, childhood and adolescence and young adulthood with most males being exposed before the age of 13. So, yeah, so parents, (laughs) it's a big deal. It's very harmful for children. And that's why people like Liz are such an invaluable resource for how do we, how do we jump into this? How do we, how do we start even getting into the waters of, you know, eight is too late, so we need to start right now. We have to be talking to our kids. But, Liz, where do parents even begin? What's kind of a jumping-off point for parents to get into being able to help their kids? Okay, so, yeah, I remember, yeah, they're being informed. Um, the second thing I'd like to say at this point is that not every child will be impacted in the same way. Um, so it can depend a lot on, um, you know, the environment they grow up in, uh, if they feel as though they have someone safe to talk about it, uh, how old they are. Um, it can be particularly troubling for children under the age of 10 versus children who, who might be thinking more about um, sex and porn at 13, 14. Um, not that it's any less uh, shocking on first sight but um, they tend to process it slightly differently. So but then other children will see pornography and say, that's gross, I never want to have sex. Um, other kids will see it and it will become a lifelong addiction um, because it spikes their curiosity. Um, in many instances, kids feel that their body almost betrays them in that you know they're seeing something that they... Um, know deep down is is really problematic if they're seeing a woman who's being hit or slapped or choked every other part of them would be saying no that's not how we treat women but at the same time their body betrays them in that they have an erection to that and are aroused by that so they're setting their sexual template to that um, violent act but for some um, that first time that they see it initially it will be shocking and then they'll go back for more and they'll become desensitised. Um, so it really does impact every child differently and even if they're not watching pornography, um, the hyper-sexualised world around them and then the behaviours and attitudes of their peers who are watching porn is still something that they need to um, navigate. So... Every kid will respond differently. Um, So when we're aware and then uh, know that every child will respond differently, um, the next thing is to really be prepared with conversations. And that's where the Culture Reframed Parents Program is so vitally important. That can be very much part of the preparation 
um, informing yourself about um, the types of things that you need to speak about and being guided in conversations. And at the moment, there's the Parents of Tweens, a course available online at Culture Reframed. And that's an amazing program. I know I've signed up and I've gone through the program myself and it is an an invaluable resource for parents. They even have scripts. The last time I was on the website, there were, there were even scripts of how to engage in conversation with your children for parents who are wondering, how do I even begin a conversation like that? And also the educational piece. And I think it is so important for parents themselves to become fully educated on the issue of pornography the way that kids are accessing it, the harms of pornography, and then also educating themselves on how they can begin to address this with their children. One of the amazing things that you also did, Liz, was you wrote a book for kids. Um, and it, um, let's see, it's available on Amazon, and it's called Not For Kids. And I think books are a great way to engage with young children in this conversation and begin to open up that dialogue. I know, Helen, you have an experience with that in your own life. Yeah, I just definitely think everyone listening, whether you have um, any kids in your life uh, at all, whether you're a parent or a godparent, definitely order Liz's book, um, Not For Kids. It's on Amazon. Um, There's only... uh, maybe a handful of similar books um, even on this topic of porn prevention and having these kind of conversations with your kids but I personally think that books are an amazing resource for parents that might find like need a starting point or a springboard for how to enter into these conversations and just a quick story um, of my own childhood when I was seven years old my mum got me a book that was called We Can Say No by uh, David Pithers. And this book were outlined all these different scenarios that a little boy and a little girl faced of um, sexual predators in different vulnerable situations. It was completely age appropriate. Um, I was seven years old and I remember the pictures very vividly. And so my mum had this intentional conversation with me. We read through the book and it was almost the equivalent of going through role plays because all these scenarios that these little kids are in Anyway, about six months after reading the book, I was um, at a playground playing on a swing by myself while my parents were um, getting Sunday school resources at this warehouse on the property and a pedophile approached me and pulled down his pants, began masturbating in front of me and called me over and said, come over here. And I, I remember as a child sitting on that swing, the only thing that went through my mind was the book, the book, what did that little girl do? And at the end of every scenario in this book, there were three things that the kids had to do. They had to shout no, run away, tell their parents. And so through my mind, it was shout no, run away, tell your parents. And I went to shout no, but my throat completely froze up because I was so scared. And I remember thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to miss the first step and jump to running away and telling my parents, okay, that's what you have to do. So I ran away, like ran straight to the warehouse, found my parents, told them. My dad like left, like rushed out of the building. There were a handful of people sort of on the on the park premises so he saw one guy who ran up to him grabbed him by the collar and was like confronted him shouting did you just talk to my daughter and the guy denied it and because my dad couldn't be certain that it was him he said he didn't he restrained himself from beating the guy up in case it was 
an innocent guy, but he got a good look at him. And we went to the police station. I filled out a report. My parents were very like empowering of me that I did the right thing. And I grew up in a very uh, amazing household. And my parents were very intentional from, I think, uh, I, was, I was told, I had the sex talk when I was six. When I was 10, my mum gave me another book that opened up all kinds of um, great conversations. But that book, age seven, I sometimes think back on that of how because I had this intentional conversation, my little seven-year-old self was set up to know how to respond in that moment. Like it was literally the, the images from the book that went through my mind that empowered me to know how to respond. And I sometimes think if I hadn't have read that book, maybe as a naive child, I would have responded to this grown adult telling me to go over there, or I might have frozen in complete fear, not knowing what to do. Um, and so just as a kind of additional plug to your book, thank you so much for writing a book. I think that it's so important as part of your general education to parents and parents, please, please use the resources that are out there. Order this book, have those conversations with your child because you might just be saving um, their life and saving their innocence like um, was the situation with me. That's a really powerful story and I, I thank you for sharing that because those little simple steps that we can do is exactly what kids need. We need to be one step ahead uh, because the alternative right. is leaving our kids to be educated by the porn industry. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited by the Not For Kids book and uh, we are actually releasing a unit of school content uh, based on this book. I'm so excited about it. Um, and it's called Umbrella. So with my work with Youth Wellbeing Project, I've developed the IQ programs. And we're really stepping it up a notch this year and re-releasing our IQ programs. And Compass IQ is for primary school uh, aged children from 4 to 12. And the first unit that we're releasing is called Umbrella. Um, and it's for ages six to seven. But I've had teachers tell me that they're going to run it with kids up to the age of nine, which is really exciting. Um, but Umbrella is all about teaching children that we need to have our very own internet umbrella um, to protect our mind from the things that we see. And the three key points, um, not that I've specifically used these words in the Not For Kids book, um, but that we draw out that these are the things that Millie learnt uh, in this school lesson plan is look away, tell someone and train my brain. So train my brain to not think of those negative images and replace it with something uh, pos positive. Um, so those three points are something that is, um, you know, just like you learnt, Helen, um, a way to remember what on earth do I do when I see this stuff right and how can people access that umbrella program that you just mentioned is that available to the public or is it only going to be available in schools or how is that going to be released um, so it will be released on the iqprograms.com website um, it'll be live in a couple of days um, so it's it can be accessed by anybody in the world. We are writing the IQ programs um, so that any country, um, English-speaking country, um, primarily, I guess, a, a Western um, culture, any country can download 
the umbrella unit. And if there's variations between support services or something in the lesson plan that might have um, specifics for that need changing for countries, we actually step people through and say, okay, you can use this as, exactly as it is, but you'll need a particular help sheet changed or uh, you'll need to change this PowerPoint slide. So I'm so excited about this lesson plan. Um, three, three lessons in this unit really teaching children how to protectively respond to when they inevitably will see pornography. So again, I'll post that link on the show notes for the podcast, but it's IQ programs. And is it .com or .org? .com. .com. Okay. And that'll be ready in a few days. Um, So that amazing work that you're doing, Liz, because I think it's hard for parents to just off the cuff or just from their own inner resource, be able to lead their kids in education and through conversations like that. And having the tool of a book or a lesson plan online is so helpful in leading the way for parents to be able to start engaging with their children. So I think this is wonderful. And and we should be raising kids. We have a community of support around them. And I think, um, you know, I know there's a lot of opposition to, um, you know, sex education in schools, for instance, and I mean, this this isn't a sex education program. This is a safeguarding program to really help um, safeguard children and young people from online harm. Um, but schools can partner with parents and parents don't have to feel alone. Um, and the way that we've set it up in, in this uh, program, in our IQ programs, is that every single unit of content that we're delivering has a, has a separate parent um, web link where they can go and they can learn what's going to be taught to their child in, this, in these lessons, what parents can do in advance to prepare, and then giving them um, discussion starters after the lessons have been delivered so that parents have an opportunity to truly partner with their children and with their, with their school um, so they're not feeling alone. That's wonderful. That's amazing. So I think, um, I think it's helpful to look at this in a couple of different ways. I think for parents, what you just said, it's the inevitable instance when kids will be exposed to porn at some point. I think sometimes it's hard for parents to swallow that, say, no, I can protect my kids. I can be the parent that will do everything right and put in all the barriers in place to make sure that my kid is safe and protected. And I think that's a noble and it's, you know, it's a wonderful, it's an innate and natural response for parents to say, no, I'm going to protect them from this harm. And I think we should, I think we should try our best. We should never put up the white flag fully and say, I surrender to the fact that, you know, my child will inevitably get uh, exposed to porn. So I think those prevention methods are important. But then I think also the preparation for that exposure. I think we have to have both. And I think to be balanced and to be able to, yes, let's just do everything in our practical power that we can to prevent our kids from exposure. So I think some of those common sense 
things to do, what would you say, Liz, in your experience would be some of the top things that parents can do to just prevent as much as they can exposure for kids? Yeah, so, um, yeah, prevention is one thing, but being proactive with education is another. So Mm -hmm. it's really both. I I don't think it's one or the other. It has to be both. Um, So some of the things that parents can do is set up parental controls. And often on a lot of the platforms, there are ways to reduce the likelihood of children um, stumbling across internet porn. So... Uh, you know, Google has a safety centre for families where you can um, step through and learn how to set the privacy settings and um, limiting adult content uh, through the Google Safety Centre. Um, YouTube has a similar um, similar features that you can uh, activate. Um, you can teach your kids how to uh, turn off the autoplay on YouTube so you're not getting random videos pop up um, that may not be appropriate. Um, You can change the settings so that uh, for YouTube so that you're less likely to stumble across adult content as a restricted access setting. Um, Being really aware of what social media sites your kids are using and being actively engaged in in learning about those and setting those up. There's lots of parental controls that parents can implement. Some uh, choose a filtering company um, or a filtering product to do that for them. And my urgency in that is it shouldn't be a set and forget, um, that it absolutely being something that you're, um, you know, not blasé about. Just because you have protection in your own home or on your kids' devices, it doesn't mean to say that they won't see it. Um, You know, kids can be on a school bus or at school. It's not uncommon for me to hear from teachers that um, kids are sitting up the back of the classroom watching porn while they're at school. Um, You know, so they can see it next. You might have all the wonderful filters and protection in place in your own home, but they can go next door and see it on somebody else's Wi-Fi or computer. Um, So it's really important that if you're putting um, parental controls on, um, that you're laying a really good foundation and an open communication. Uh, So one of the ways that you can do that with a free resource from Culture Reframed is uh, the social media and mobile phone contract. And that really helps step parents through what sort of things they need to think about as they're buying their child a, a smartphone or as they're starting to use um, social media platforms or gaming um, and stepping through with parents um, what they need to know and then how to have that conversation with their child and including a, a, a template for a contract um, that they can tailor to their family and, um, and you know, set up this open communication with your child. Tell us a little bit more about that contract and what, so, so this is a social media contract between yourself as a parent and your child in kind of setting the boundaries around how they're going to use social media. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you, when, when your child has 
um, access to um, any any device, you really want them to be able to feel confident to know what are the rules, what are the ground rules, and and then what happens if I break those rules? Am I going to lose my phone, which is what most of them are incredibly worried about? Um, am I um, going to, you know, a, a mum and dad going to go off at me? So it's really about parent and child being on the same page. Um, for instance, in one of the clauses on the contract, um, the parent actually agrees. It says, I, parent caregiver, promise to respond calmly if something goes wrong and we'll work together to find a solution. So this just isn't about kids, you must never do this. It's like kids are going to stretch the boundaries and break the rules and make mistakes. And Well, how are parents going to respond to that um, and, and keep the lines of communication open? That's great. Yeah, communication, I think, is such a key to being able to engage in a meaningful and helpful way with your children. And I think along the lines of communication about all this, I think sometimes parents can have a difficult time communicating about these things because a lot of people grew up in households where it was taboo to even talk about sex where it was just something that is really hush hush. You just, everything has a code word. We don't really even, we don't talk about that, even though it's a, it's a reality for teens and adolescents growing up that they become curious and they need to know, they need to figure out and get information about this. But as parents, a lot of parents today grew up in households like that, and they weren't taught how to speak freely and openly about these things. And I think that can become a barrier to being able to communicate now with your own kids. Do you have any recommendations for parents who feel embarrassed or ashamed or just uncomfortable in even saying the word pornography or talking about sex with their kids? How do you overcome that as a parent? And yeah, you know, do you have any suggestions on, on that part of communication? Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely go to the Culturally Free Parents Program because in there we do talk about, you know, what our what what we what were your background experiences? Why do you think the way that you think today about um, sex? And uh, what's your communication style? Just helping parents really reflect on how their upbringing may contribute to the way that they think about it now. Um, so, culture reframe parents program is a really good place to start. Beyond that, um, it is really sometimes about getting coaching or finding other parents who um, are facing similar struggles. And there's a couple of good places to go to get support with them. One is um, Anya Maness. Uh, she has a um, website. And I'm just going to find it for you so you can pop it in your links. Um, but um, I might have to send it to you. But she has a um, website. Oh, here we go. A website called talkingaboutsex.com. And she does some uh, lots of webinars to help parents overcome their obstacles to having these conversations. 
Um, and she also does one-on-one coaching. So sometimes it's a matter of, you know, for some parents it's a matter of trauma. Um, they've experienced something traumatic themselves or, as you say, a, a filtered environment where they haven't been able to talk about sex. Um, it's really important that we face our own fears um, in having those conversations and, and think, am I trying to raise a well-behaved child or am I trying to raise a well-grounded adult? And so if we start thinking about the end goal, we want a balanced adult, then what are they going to need to know right from very young? What foundational concepts can I lay right from the very beginning that will help them uh, be grounded? Um, and so some of those conversations are as simple as teaching your child's correct body names um, for genitals right from as early as they can start beginning to talk. We, we don't hide back from saying nose and ears and mouth. Why would we stop saying the word penis or vagina or vulva, that just leaves a sense of shame that I can't speak about these body parts. Um, so really laying a really good foundation from a very young age uh, and sometimes that involves facing our own fears. Definitely. I think even the avoidance of even talking about these things can be harmful because then there's such a mystery around it and the curiosity from kids if they especially when they're um you know hitting their teenage years if they haven't had these conversations with their their parents and they're finding out from the internet or from other kids um I just think if if parents are speaking to their kids about it when kids hear things from other kids they already have a little bit of a um a mindset and internal skill set to have a grid for what's been talked about but even um I was just always so grateful I felt my parents were trying to talk to me about things before kids did that they they treated me as a as an adult or maybe um as a 10 year old I felt like my mum was maybe talking to me about things that might be more relevant for a 13 or 14 year old but in a very respectful way of you know I'm treating you like a mature um girl and I'm uh, I'm I trust you but this is a really shame-free open conversation for us to have and I think as you were saying Liz like just the very fact of having um you know there not be any any words that are shameful from a, a young age just knowing talking about your body talking about things to do with sexuality um are openly talked about between uh, parents and kids that in itself builds trust for children to know I can talk to my my mum or dad about this I don't have to um, look at it in secret or find out from a friend there's nothing that's in a shame zone to talk about with my parents and that empowerment just only increases in teenage years when you feel confident to ask um, your parents things um, so I, I definitely think if that is that foundation is laid as a child when it begins to matter even more and more as a teenager there's that um, openness of, of conversation and communication with your parents um, that's so important and just the yeah, whole idea definitely. of the whole idea of like media decoding media literacy like parents encouraging their their children to question all manner of media and be like well what's the message behind that so that as an adolescent you are questioning all the time I remember 
like throwing out all my girls magazines age around 15 because I was get, I was decoding all these messages so much I literally got to the point I thought these magazines are giving me brain damage they're, they're telling me all these lies they're affecting my self-esteem like this is not cool and because of an increased media literacy I like made a decision about some toxic girls magazines that I knew were affecting me as a young woman negatively so I, I think that it, it really is so important and does have an effect on your child's sense of self and esteem. That's amazing, Helen. I I kind of had the opposite when I was 15, where I was pulling out pictures from an Abercrombie and Fitch magazine and posting them all over my bedroom so, and getting fully um, educated by the culture at that time. Um, but So it's interesting to kind of hear the difference between the reaction you had reaction I had as a young person but yeah it's that shame free I think that I think that's a key Liz said we have to have open communication but how can you have open communication if there's this um, sense of shame that's built around the topic of sex and just totally being able to remove that in your home and build a culture in your family a shame free culture around talking about these things I think is absolutely essential do you have any um thoughts on that um liz i'd love to hear your perspective on on the on the issue of shame and um just ways that you can build a better communication between parents and children yeah look i think um it's it's vitally important to try and do everything that we can to reduce that right from the very beginning and i mean kids reach a certain age where you know, they once they pass through the tween years, between about nine to twelve, and and they, uh, you know, as they're entering the teenage years, they, their relationship with us drastically changes. So if we haven't laid a really good foundation by then, and then all of a sudden we think, oh well, I'm going to start to talk to my teens about porn, they're like, oh, forget it. You haven't had any conversations with me up till now. What? Why would I trust you? Whereas in the beginning, if we can lay those foundational conversations very, very early, I mean, kids are curious. They want to know all sorts of stuff. They will ask the most random questions. Yeah, so if we think about uh, children who um, are curious and all the questions that they naturally want to ask, we can tap into that. Um, and I think it's particularly harder for parents who may be in the city versus parents who are on the farm. You know, it's quite natural to teach young children about animals mating and that, you know, they end up with babies and where do those babies come from? Well, you know, the, the girl cow and the boy cow get together and they share a little sperm or, you know, using simple language for them. Um, so that they create a baby in the in the mummy cow's tummy. That can be a simple way to introduce it so it's not shock factor. Um, whereas we get so uptight and think that somehow if we're going to then translate that to adult language that kids will be surprised. Um, it's actually more um, confronting for them later on. Um, they're much more ready to hear about these things when they're three, four, five, six years old, very inquisitive. Um, so we can just make it part of the natural conversation and completely eliminate the shame. That's great. That's um, mm. 
as you were talking and you're speaking about just being able to intercept at the young age and that makes everything so much easier. I was thinking about the parent that might be listening to this and is nodding their head, yes, 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 and then thinking, I wish I had known this years ago because my child has already been exposed and I know that they have been exposed already and I know that there's been a damaging impact on them already. And so what do I do? You know, and I'm just thinking about there's probably a lot of parents out there who didn't get this information soon enough and their children are already teens who've been exposed to porn and they're also wondering, okay, well, what do I do now that I'm jumping in on this conversation a little bit too late? What do you, what do you recommend for parents like that? So um, there's not many resources to help parents with that. There is more coming with the culturally framed uh, parents of um, teens program on its way. So there will be lots more up in the next few months. Um, But a book that is very good is called Closing Pandora's Box, Empowering Parents to Help Their Children Reject Pornography. And that's basically the next, um, so Cultural Reframe, for instance, have a, a handout called Compose Yourself to give you simple pointers with what to do when you first discover that your child has accessed pornography. Beyond that, parents may need to develop a strategy. So if their child has been adversely impacted, um, is showing... Um, signs of needing support, whether that be because their um, behaviours or attitudes towards other children have changed or perhaps even crossed the line to problematic sexualised behaviours, or if uh, their kids um, are addicted to porn, and I know that that seems like a shocking concept, but I've got uh, therapists who are telling me that they're seeing kids with porn addiction as young as seven years old. It's going to be heartbreaking if you know what's actually in pornography. Um, And at times like that, parents can feel completely overwhelmed. And Closing Pandora's Box is uh, the only book that I have found to date that is aimed for parents to help them understand what's going on, what's going on with the neuroscience of the brain. It's not that your child is some sort of deviant. Your child has been groomed by the porn industry. Um, Get angry at the porn industry. Don't get angry at your child. Um, And then together work out how you're going to step through a strategy and develop a strategy that works for you and your child. And and then the other thing I would say is get professional help if you need it. Don't feel like you have to do this on your own uh, because it can be overwhelming for parents who are having to deal with the fallout. That's helpful. I'm going to make sure I put um, that resource in the show notes of Closing Pandora's Box for probably the many parents out there who didn't get this information soon enough because I think this is information that is just starting to emerge um, and develop and grow and get out to more of the public, but definitely not mainstream information that you're going to be hearing in your normal parenting class I think um so I 
you know, parents who have children that already have been exposed to porn, like Liz is saying, you know, don't feel shame about that either. And I think one thing that I appreciated that Gail Dines, um, who's the founder of Culture Reframed, has said before, and she said that it's, it's truly unfair to place the burden of protecting your kids from porn and porn culture on parents and to say that parents, you are the ones that are responsible for keeping your kids away from the harms of porn and protecting them completely because it's, it's, she says it's as if, you know, we're living in a polluted toxic environment where literally the air we breathe is full of toxins and then trying to say that a parent is responsible for protecting their children from that polluted air and how unreasonable it would be to think that and place that um, burden on parents. So um, I think that is just one thing to say as a caveat to all of this is that, yes, parents have to, you know, should be trying their best to prevent their kids from being exposed to porn. Do everything you can. Put in your filters and, and um, you know, your router, your smart routers that can filter porn and your apps and all of that and monitoring and, and preparation as well for when they do get exposed. But at the same time, don't feel the burden of shame if they have been, because we live in a porn culture. We live in an environment that's steeped in hypersexual media where everywhere you turn, you're getting exposed to this. And so parents just, you know, release yourself, I guess, of that burden of feeling like if you're kids do get exposed that it's something wrong that you did or you didn't do and I think that is it's a helpful perspective for parents to have and that we need to address this as a society as a culture we need to address at the government level at this you know education level um and just really as a society take this on versus just putting the burden on parents alone right I've, I would hope that yeah. people would feel em- empowered as parents, not um, shamed, as you said, Lila, if they are aware that their kids have already been exposed to porn, um, but be empowered to have their, these conversations with with their kids. Um, I think one, one of the most empowering things that a child can be taught is, is the power of the word no, of um, knowing... Mm having ownership over their own body, their sexuality, knowing they have bodily autonomy, knowing um, what agency looks like. And this feeds into all conversations around the whole topic of sexual consent and relationships. And even in addition to teaching them about, you know, how to be protected from a toxic sexuality, equally being intentional about what healthy sexuality looks like, what healthy relationships are, and talking to them about, you know, what is sex? What is the purpose of sex? And reframing it as a, um, in, in a positive light, not just as a, a shameful, dirty, we have to protect you and keep you in a, in a bubble from this, um, but actually giving them the, the respect and maturity to, to ask those questions, to think about, um, you know, what is the purpose of sex, um, I think is really helpful. And to just empower kids you know that these kind of mental tools that you're get you're giving children and adolescents in these conversations are equipping them for all manner of other um situations i feel like with you know with 
media literacy in general with um, with peer pressure, knowing how to withstand the peer pressure of all manner of other things that they might be exposed to, them having the emotional tools to be able to say no, to be able to um, choose a different way and just have that strength and empowerment that, um, that you know, parents have the role to, to give them um, and hopefully we'll begin to see changes in a systematic cultural and political level concerning this public health crisis as well in future. Yeah, look, it is a public health crisis and, and, and I fully stand with you and Dr Gail Dines in saying that it shouldn't be on the shoulders of parents. At the moment, it seems that in most places um, it is. Um, and, you know, parents can feel overwhelmed with that. I mean, one of the ways that parents could deal with that together is to download the parents program, the Parents of Tweens, um, from Culture Reframed uh, and run a small group to discuss that amongst yourselves. It, could ha it helps to know that other parents are facing the same sorts of challenges. Um, that's, that's one thing that parents can do. But we have to take a public health approach to this and that leans into my work with eChildhood is really looking at what is a public health approach to pornography what actually needs doing to respond to that um, and where do we even begin? So, I mean, through e-childhood, we talk about, um, you know, some, some solutions and they include uh, digital solutions, um, which has to first be underpinned by legislation and policy. Education is a solution and therapeutic solutions. What are we doing to support the kids who have been harmed by this? Um, and it involves engaging governments, um, child youth agencies, uh, tech companies, um, policy writers. It, it involves um, coming together and saying as a community, as a society, we really need to do something um, for our kids and, and respond to this. It, it's, it's unthinkable the damage that this is doing now. And when the world finally wakes up and says, oh my gosh, really, is this really happening? Um, people will be scrambling for answers. And, uh, you know, I applaud the UK. They're implementing age verification, which essentially means that um, consumers will need to be verified that they're over the age of 18 in order to access porn sites in the UK, so I applaud them and we really hope that that's rolled out in other countries around the globe, but to say that it's solely the responsibility of parents is such a huge oversight and we don't say to parents, you know, we don't want kids to drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes, but we are going to leave you as the only people who have any kind of measures to put in place to protect them <laughs> right. on the, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. counter, the, counter that. We say, okay, alcohol industry, tobacco industry, you need to do whatever you can to ensure that your product is not easily accessible by children. And so in the same way, the age verification in the UK says to the porn industry, you need to do, you need to work with us to ensure that whatever means possible that children cannot access it so readily. It seems so common sense when you break it down. 
Yeah. It seems so clear when we know the harms of porn and the addictive nature of porn and the impact it can have on kids. It amazes me that there's any pushback at all on age verification for porn seems websites. Seems like a no-brainer. It's it it seems like a no-brainer that it should be everywhere by now because we already are so far into the internet age. Um it's baffling that there's any resistance to this, but there but there is. And um but it is encouraging to see countries like the UK implementing age verifications and I would go Britain yeah right <laughs> Helen your, your hometown um but yeah I would I would encourage all parents and others everybody who's concerned about this topic to start advocating for legislative change at the very least kind of the basic level age verification so that you can protect children from accessing this to some degree i mean it can't prevent Mm. all of it but it can make a big difference and i think that i love that culture reframed is taking the lead in in e-childhood like you mentioned these organizations that are on the front line of presenting pornography as a public health crisis because that is exactly what it is and i think for a long time we've heard about pornography um just kind of as a moral issue we've heard a lot of the the church coming come out against porn as sin and all of these kinds of things a lot of our um, listeners have have heard a lot of that too but I think that addressing this from evidence-based perspective the research is abundant on the harms of porn and I think tackling it from this public health perspective is the key to be able to make a difference I think mm-hmm. in in affecting change Fight the New Drug are another great resource on um, education on the harms of porn mm. um, for adolescents. And I'd add another group to your list of communities, Liz, of churches, knowing that a lot of our listeners are in a faith-based community. Churches are, are an amazing opportunity to have these kind of, like many people are, are already in existing cell groups or small groups. And if you're someone that wants to have these kind of conversations and wants to talk with other parents, um, if, start a small group or maybe consider, um, you know, within your own church communities, having um, this kind of research and sharing it with the other parents that you know of um, who are also really caring about this. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is something that no community can shy away from. Um, you know, it's it's impacting so many people different, so many different people on so many different levels. Right. Um, and you know, unfortunately, you've got um, people who take the approach of uh, isn't it so empowering? Um, you know, isn't it wonderful? I'm thinking particularly of, of some of the sexology community. There has been a, a definite shift in the sexology community over the last few years where people are, are questioning uh, pornography. Wendy Maltz is a fantastic example who was a sexologist who used to recommend pornography way back in the day. And then she saw all the increasing problems that pornography was having with her clients and totally changed her position on it. Mm. Um, so, so we, no matter what community um, we're in, we have to be having these conversations because the losers, if we don't, are our children. 
Exactly, yeah. because the porn industry will be happy to quickly usurp the role of sex educator for children, happily to get them hopefully addicted for life is what, I mean, we've, we've talked and interviewed porn consumers and those who have been addicted to porn over a lifetime and have struggled with it. And many of them cite a single experience of childhood exposure as what hooked them in to a lifetime of struggle. And um, a lot of them have cited that that's where they learned everything that they knew about sex was from porn. One, one interviewee that we spoke to had said it was a joke when he first got such sex education in school because he had already seen porn and he, he already had his sex education from porn. And it was much too late by the time they got to it at school and it was non-existent at home, non-existent in church. Um, he just wasn't getting information anywhere and definitely the porn industry was ready to step in and, and uh, provide that for him to his detriment and to the detriment of so many millions of people and young adults and children who are getting exposed to porn mm -hmm. at younger and younger ages actually. As I've recently read some studies that have said, you know, the age of exposure is getting younger and younger and younger as access to these devices, tablets, mobile phones, and all of that is being given to kids at younger and younger ages. So truly, this is a public health crisis. And I, I just was on your blog, Liz, and I think you described it as mammoth proportions. This is, you know, it's time sensitive. It's urgent. Um, you know, there's no room to wait and just wait and see what happens. I think um, there's definitely an urgency, and this is certainly a crisis that we have to deal with. And so yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking back to these stories, you know, of these people that you've been interviewing, and, and thinking what would have been the difference mm. if they had have had someone that they could go to and unpack what they saw. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So instead of that first sighting of pornography being something that, you know, stays hidden um, and isn't talked about, that they could go to a safe adult and yes. have a conversation about what they saw, what, what confused them about it and what they should do and get some basic education of how pornography hijacks the reward system in the brain and mm. imagine what difference that would make to, to an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old who has first seen pornography. That's such a good question and thing to think about is if in those scenarios they had that one supportive adult. I have read and you know, doing the research for the book as well um, that the one most important what the, what is called protective factors and Liz you're very familiar with that whole concept of protective factors but for parents who aren't familiar with the term a protective factor is something that can help your child to overcome um, and um, I guess prevail in the face of adversity or in the face of exposure to risk where they can be exposed but they'll they won't be harmed. Um, and those develop what's called resilience. And resilience is the ability to resist that harm in the presence of those risk factors. Um, but anyway, there was this um, study and the National Scientific Council on, on the Developing Child said that the key to developing this resilience 
is to be able to have one, just even one strong relationship with a key adult where there's that trust and there's that open communication and there's that ability to share troubling experiences and just have that person that a young adult, a child, an adolescent can go to when something like that happens. And it's just, it's amazing the importance of having that one key strong relationship. I mean, the more the better, but what they were saying was just having even that one trusted adult that a child can go to makes the world of difference for a child in being able to overcome adversity and exposure to porn. Absolutely. And I think um, it's important, though, that we help our children identify who those safe people are. And, you know, if mum and dad aren't always around, who else can they lean into? And that very much speaks to the protective behaviours that you mentioned before, helping our children identify a safety network. So that can be everybody from trusted parents or carers or other family members through to teachers at school or, um, you know, even the receptionist at the front counter at the school um, can be a useful resource um, or a helpline um, or a website designed to help kids. There's always someone uh, that they can reach out to and it's about helping our kids identify who that safe someone is. And I should also preface that, unfortunately, um, a lot of abuse um, of children happens within uh, with those that they know. Mm. Uh, so we can't always presume yeah. that a family is a safe environment uh, mm. for children. Um, so we need to help them understand where else to go for support. That's a good point to make. Yeah, not all... Uh, family environments are safe and not all those parent-child relationships are built on trust either. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, uh, and, and unfortunately another um, really concerning outcome of pornography is the rise on child-on-child -child mm. or peer-on-peer -peer sexual abuse. Um, really heartbreaking stories coming out about kids. Um, unfortunately, the the places where they are most likely to experience abuse are either at school or at home mm. um, from someone they know. And statistically, it's hard to know, but it is research indicates that anywhere from 40 to 70% of abuse against children is carried out by other children or young people. Often we mm. think that children are abused by that older adult or that older predator, which may be the case, um, but unfortunately and increasingly so, um, children and young people are being harassed and sexually assaulted at school or um, in the home. So that's a very sensitive topic, but it's something wow. that we also need to be aware of, that that's definitely, um, yes, it's happened for, for years, but because of the way that pornography is training children and young people, uh, it is another factor that we really need to take into account. Wow, that's a stunning statistic, too, that you just mentioned mm -hmm. of the, wow, the prevalence of child-on-child -child sexual abuse and 
Wow. And just that it's rising. It seems like I'm starting to see more and more stories in the media and things being written and disseminated about this issue of child on child connected to porn. Like you were saying, um, I know I just had come across the story of a child that had been watching porn on the Xbox and then wanted to try it out. And he ended up abusing and raping his young sister. And I think this is happening more and more as children are being exposed to porn, very unfortunately. Yeah, and we only hear the tip of the iceberg um, in the media reports. We don't hear about the emergency centres, seeing you know, emergency hospital departments, um, pediatric pediatrics nurses, um, you know, seeing children, um, young teenagers with internal injuries, um, with uh, you know, young people trying to mimic what they've seen in pornography. And we're, we're talking about in, yeah, internal injuries, vaginal or anal injuries from kids trying to replicate what they mm-hmm. see, um, mm-hmm. being choked or slapped or hit and then yeah. being so totally confused with that in that, um, hang on, this doesn't feel right, but that's literally what they've seen happen online. Right. So there's this huge mess in their head going, well, I'm aroused by that when I see it online because that's what pornography does. It arouses people. Mm-hmm. I'm aroused by that. How come it doesn't feel good now when I try to act that out? Then the trauma on young girls experiencing this um, and saying, no, this, I don't want this to happen to my body, but the boyfriend's saying, but this is what you do. This is, this is what porn is. This is what sex is. This is yeah, how we're supposed yeah. to do it. So, so if sobering. they're using it as a how-to manual, um, this is why I said right at the beginning, we need to have those early persistent conversations mm-hmm. and reinforce. Um, the sex ed now, whether it's in the home or in schools, everything about sex education needs to be through the lens of how do we counteract porn messages we cannot do sex ed like we used to, and, and my gosh, America is a very interesting country mm-hmm. <laughs> with how they approach sex ed, but we can't do it either of those approaches. We have to look at if pornography is now the main sex educator, mm-hmm. everything that we talk to our kids about needs to counteract those messages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has to be at the forefront of our minds all the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. It can't be an afterthought or something that we kind of just don't make a serious and intentional effort to be implementing on a daily basis. And I think that's like a lot of parents might think, well, I'll have the talk. You know, we always hear about the talk where it sounds like it's just this one time thing where we explain everything, we sit down, we look, this is how it all works and close the book on it. And that's the end. Um, We have to have a very, very, very different approach to our children with regard to sex and sexuality in this age. And being an ongoing, ongoing. Yes. Like you're saying, starting so early. And And I'm glad you mentioned video games as well. I think 
that's something that a lot of parents might not even realize some of the content of video games for their kids. And as you mentioned, some video games have very violent or even pornographic content. And so I don't know all the, the names of the ones that are or aren't, but um, if, if you have any parents that are like, oh, red flag, I don't know any of the content of the video games my kids are watching. Um, what would you suggest, Liz? Is there a way for them to, um, uh, I guess even just checking the back, that seems a really obvious thing. Check the back of the video games. Do they say sexual content? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, most video games have some sort of classification rating attached to them. Um, so it's really important. Go to sites like Common Sense Media to learn about, you know, the latest movies or the latest apps or, or video games. Uh, they usually give a um, thorough appraisal of each of them. So just be informed, you know. We, mm. Whatever we absorb, we become. Um, and so it's really important that we're aware of what our kids are absorbing. And the more they um, dive into social media, the less say we have as to what they will absorb. So we really need to be teaching them to think critically. I mean, you picked up on media literacy uh, before and, and that's part of it, but we need to be teaching our kids to question mm. everything that they're seeing or observing and, and measure that against, well, is this going to produce something helpful in your life or is it going to, you know, create dramas? Mm. Um, so it's really teaching them to think critically. Absolutely. So important to be able to take a step back from the images and be able to analyze that and and have some kind of a framework to think critically about it and how it's affecting them. And is this really what is this what's really true about women? Is this really what's true about men? Um, is this really what's true about relationships and sex and um, just being able to decode, analyze break down, take a step back, look at, look at it objectively. I think that's such an important tool that we can give our children um, in this age where we're just bombarded with images. We live in a world where our main, I would say, when, you know, our main form of communication is images and um, media. So absolutely critical work that you're doing, Liz. I appreciate mm -hmm. all of the wealth of resources that you've given us um, during this time. And I will definitely post all of the links that you mentioned on the show notes here, along with Liz's bio and her website. So you can dive into her, her website, a link to the book that she's written. And I hope that at least this conversation is a good starting point for a lot of parents or caregivers or certainly anybody that cares about children and the impact of pornography and porn culture. Yeah, we so, so value your work and what you're doing in this arena, Liz, and just giving uh, parents and, um, and just people tools to navigate, uh, ways to be informed and educated and to help people who are feeling either really overwhelmed, as you say, Lila, out of their depth or even really fearful or naive and have no uh, no knowledge of the resources out there or how to have these conversations or what they can do so um, yeah I really feel like everything you've shared has just been so insightful and empowering 
and some an incredible wealth of resources for um, people to follow up on. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to speak with you and I uh, yeah, love talking about solutions, which I hope that uh, parents and too. listeners have, have got a lot of today. So, um, But yeah, it's been great to catch up and thank you so much for um, highlighting this issue and really trying to support people in, in knowing what how to respond. Well, thank you, Liz, and we'll definitely be in touch. And again, we appreciate you and your time. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to our podcast. To learn more about how you can be involved, go to exoduscry.com and follow us on social media. If you have questions or comments, email us at feedback at exoduscry.com. We'd love to hear from you.